Good morning. Good morning, class. That's what it sounds like. It's not like some pastors call their students on a weekend. No. I, um, you know, guest speakers who come to a place like this, they typically start off by saying, oh, what a privilege it is to be here. I really mean that. <laughs> not that the others don't, but I... I really uh, mean that. I, I have been, I, I've had a hope, a desire to come here for, uh, well, for three years. And, um, and as I think about the, I'm just reminiscing a little bit, so if you'll just, you know, sort of uh, bear with me for a second. But th- there are moments that I have in my mind from past years that were parts, that there were points on a trajectory that, that, that God was orchestrating that ends up with you here. Uh, I can remember Mike Pasovich showing up in the front doorstep of Sovereign Grace Ministries years ago. Uh, this young, passionate guy from Australia, um, ready to plant a church and uh, you know, just ready to, ready to preach the gospel, ready to see people come to Christ. I, um, I just remember his zeal and, and the category that that created for people. Hmm. I wonder if God might call us to Australia. Even before that, 2000, 2001, Dave Taylor, actually it was 2000, I took a trip to the UK. And um, the church there, Christ Church, was considering sending both Dave and, uh, and another man, Nathan Smith, to the pastor's car. So I went over there to to sort of process their application in a sense to get to know them to see, because it's a big commitment to come across the ocean and spend a year um, just a wonderful week I, I, I think about sitting in West London um, I could take you to the table uh, with Dave and Pete Greasley um, and we were just talking and Dave Harvey was, was just talking about wow should, should Dave go to Australia should he plant this church so there. There's 10,000 other of these. They're just small moments that, that, I, that I remember, that I was privileged to see. And now to come here and to see this room filled uh, with people that God has brought to this church that didn't exist three years ago. A platform for gospel proclamation that didn't exist three years ago. A context for relational sharing and biblical fellowship that didn't exist three years ago. A place where people are coming and having their lives transformed by the gospel that didn't exist three years ago. Uh, A group of people singing praises to God, joining in the the worship that's happening right now in heaven that didn't exist three years ago. Um, I'm just so moved to be here. And So, thank you for... Uh, You're welcome. Far more importantly, thank you for your love for the Savior. Thank you for your commitment to the local church. Um, I have have all the respect in the world for Dave. I have tremendous respect as I'm getting to know the men who are leading with him. But uh, as I see so many people serving, all the people, I mean, I look at this, this is just amazing. It's a retreat, and it looks like it's better than my living room. Um, And Allison, who's just Makes you dizzy watching her, and she could run a small South American country all by herself. <laughs> um, 
and everywhere I look, there's just joyful servants. And I just think, and I, you know, I spend a lot of my life training pastors, and, and I just, um, you know, you, you can do a lot in a classroom, but you, you build churches on the shoulders of people like, like you. Yes, you do. Um, you know, so uh, it's just an honor to be with you, and I'm just thrilled, thrilled to be here. And um, never been in the Southern Hemisphere before, so the stars look different. And uh, it's just it's just amazing to be here. So thanks, thanks for your welcome. Um, the, we we mentioned this last time. How many people were not here last night? How many people came up this morning? Okay, a few of you. Thanks for coming. Um, we we mentioned last night sort of the overarching theme for our time together the, under this title, this heading, "Living Life on Purpose." And that phrase really struck me because as I, I thought about as I thought about it, I realized how often I'm not living life on purpose. Uh, I, I'm not living intentionally. Uh, I'm, you know, life is just coming at me. Uh, I, you know, I feel like a cricket batter, and the ball is just bouncing. And see, how about that for contextualization? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you just life comes at you that way, though. You don't know where it's going to hit, and it bounces and it curves, and you get hit in the face. Um, and you, I, you could feel confused, and you could feel frustrated, you could feel bewildered, and you could just feel weary, just weary. I've got plans for my life, things I want to do, but I'm just, I'm just weary. Um, and that's frustrating because we know, and Scripture tells us that there is a purpose to our lives. God is a sovereign God, and He is right now working all things. Every molecule in the universe, he's, he's working all things according to a purpose, according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And, and his purposes aren't just abstract. That's just not theology. Those purposes include you. They include your life, your studies, your family, your work. This church, our existence is bounded by God's sovereign purposes and His sovereign activity. And those purposes transcend just you. They just they transcend just your life. God has a purpose for His people. God has a purpose for Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney. Um, and so that, that phrase, living life on purpose, it, it assumes something. It, it assumes one has a purpose, something from which we derive meaning, something from which we derive motivation, something from which we gain direction and perspective. Now, as Christians, one of the things that, that makes us different from non-Christians, one of the things that makes you different than from before you knew Christ is that purpose comes from outside ourselves, doesn't it? We, we don't... We don't find it within ourselves. We don't, we don't create it like the world wants to tell us. You know, cre- Create a beautiful future for yourself. That ain't happening. You'll create carnage for yourself apart from God. Um, we, don't, we don't generate it. It, it comes from outside us. It, it comes, comes from God. And when the Holy Spirit And many of you have experienced this. When the Holy Spirit comes to us, when the Holy Spirit changes us, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see, to see God, 
to see his purposes, to see his perspective on life and church and reality itself. It changes everything, doesn't it? it? changes everything. Ourselves, our lives, the entire world takes on new meaning and significance and potentialities. You know, my phone, let me see, can I see my phone, Dave? Got a phone here. And it's it's just filled with apps, right? I don't even know what half of these apps do anymore. You know, a friend tells you, and you get an app, and pretty soon you don't use it, or you don't figure it out. Uh, but there's one app on here that, that I do return to. And for me, and for my two little boys, uh, I have a son who's 12 and a son who's... Sunday's 10, it never loses its appeal. Do you know what that is? It's not really one of the cool ones, although I think it's one of the coolest ones. Google Earth. Who likes Google Earth? you got to like Google Earth, don't you? Uh, you know, how cool is it to press a button and, and there's the globe and it's spinning slowly and then all of a sudden you kind of race down through the atmosphere, down through the clouds, closer and closer, and then all of a sudden, there's my house. I love it. It's my house. It was the globe, now it's my house. And then and then you enter something else, and then you go back out. It's like a giant bungee ride. You just whoa back out, there's the globe again, then you go back down, and then you're, there's France, and the Eiffel Tower, or the Sydney Opera House. It's, it's just, just amazing, amazing to me. Um, I, I don't get tired of, I don't get tired of that, and I, for a number of reasons, I like maps, I like Travel or like exotic locations. But I think the greatest appeal, I think the greatest appeal to Google Earth lies in this. Google Earth takes the familiar and it transforms my perspective of it. it takes the familiar and transforms my perspective of it. it. It transforms my perspective on the world and my place in the world. I'm not just in my room sitting at a computer. I, I, I occupy a particular place on the planet. Everything changes. Google Earth expands my, my narrow perspective and shows me I am part of something massive. Part of this globe. Part of something much bigger than me. Now as we begin this retreat, um, I, I'm praying, I'm hoping, I'd like us to have a sort of a theological Google Earth experience. Um, a, a perspective broadening exercise. That's what this morning is, a perspective broadening exercise. In particular, a perspective broadening exercise on God's purposes for his people, God's purposes for his church. If, if you ask different people uh, about their church, tell me about your church. You get all kinds of different answers, don't you? Some people say, well, you know, I, our church has great preaching. Good. Our church has great worship. I just love the relationships in my church. I, I, our church is very evangelistic. We're really reaching a particular community, etc. You get different answers from different people. Those are all good answers. Those are, those, are all, those are all evidences of grace that God gives to churches. But they're sort of ground-level answers. You know, Google Earth Street View, Right? Where you actually see a location, you have that, right? And you, you see the street. That's sort of Google Earth street view answers. Here's, here's what I want to consider this morning. Now, what is your perspective on your church? What is God's perspective 
on your church? Where does he locate it? Not on the globe, but where is he located in terms of his plans and his purposes? What is he doing in and through your church? As you gather on Sundays, or as you, you get together during the week in your life groups, or you reach out to your community, what is it that you are doing? And how does that fit in with God's purposes? There's, there's a number of angles we could come at this, of course, but this morning what I want to do is focus on one of the broadest purposes of God for his church, for his people. I want to, I want to bring to your attention, that's simple, I'm going to do something simple. I want to bring to your attention one basic idea, really one essential biblical reality. And it is a reality that is woven throughout the entire Bible. It's a reality that should profoundly inform, it's meant to profoundly inform the way we think about church, the way we think about the people sitting around you. And not just, not just the church, the church universal in the abstract, but your church, Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, the people you're, you're building your lives with. Our place in that church, our relationship with God as we experience it with other believers. Okay? So that's what I want to, that's what I want to explore with you this morning. And here's the reality. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. If I was going to sum it up, I'd put it this way. God's eternal purpose, God's eternal purpose is this. It's to dwell among a people he has made his own. That's the reality I want to unpack this morning. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people he has made his own. His, own. His, his purpose is not simply to create a people. His purpose is not simply to rule or govern a people. His purpose is not simply to save a people, although that's obviously a massive part of his purposes. But it, his purpose includes all of these things, but it transcends those things as well. In his creating, in his ruling, in his saving, God has resolved something. He has resolved to dwell among a people that he has made his own. He is gained for himself so that he can dwell with them. Now, over the next few minutes, what I want to do is explore that truth, okay? You know where we're going now. To explore that truth that spans really the entire, the entire storyline of Scripture. And, and I really think that the effects of, of seeing that truth, the effects of, of, of embracing that truth, really can, it's really meant to have a transforming effect on us. It's meant to be a theological Google Earth experience. In a fallen world, we really are wired, aren't we, to focus on the superficial, to focus on the temporal. When we look at the church, we look at ourselves, we look at our relationships, it's so often a man-centered focus or a problem-centered focus or a, a weakness-centered focus, or a lack. What don't we have? What, how are we not like these other people? Or I wish we could. You know, we're so focused there. This truth lifts our eyes from the familiar, from the often mundane, to see how glorious your church really is. See how precious your church really is. To see how important your church really is. And the purposes of God. Okay? So here's our text this morning. It's the whole Bible. Okay? 
So what we're going to do is, <laughs> we're going to study the Bible, the whole Bible this morning, okay? Not every single word, but we'll, uh, but to help us see this truth, it's a, it's a lot, but to help us see this truth, what I want to do is bring to your attention five images, okay? Five images that appear along the storyline of the Bible. And each image tells us something. And each image unpacks in a progressive way something about, each image unveils something further about this truth, about God's purpose to dwell among the people he has made himself. He has made his own, all right? Image number one. Image number one. A garden. A garden. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. We start our exploration here at the beginning of the story, which obviously is critical for the rest of the story. And you know this, don't you? The Bible Bible's not just a bunch of random words, random chapters, different kinds of books. The Bible tells a story. It traces God's dealings with creation. In particular, his saving initiatives toward his creation. His creation in general and mankind in particular. And so the first three chapters of Genesis are particularly important because they lay the foundation for everything else that's going to follow. Now you remember how it begins, I would imagine. In chapter 1 of Genesis, God creates everything that exists, right? Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He speaks, the universe leaps into existence. Uh, heavens and the earth beginning with light, progressing onward, barreling forward until the, the crown of creation, mankind. Then immediately after this, Genesis chapter 2, especially 2 verse 4 and following, we have what's called the second creation narrative, which is complementary to the first. It's not contradictory to the first, it's complementary to the first. Chapter 1, the writer is painting with a broad brush and focusing on all of creation, culminating in mankind. In chapter 2, the writer gives us detail. He zooms in on mankind, on that part of the story. And in, as the pinnacle of creation, it gives us much more detail there. So that's what we're looking at when we come to Genesis 2. What do we find? Well, after God creates man, in uh, verse 7 we learn about a garden. So look with me in Genesis 2, verse 8. Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so that's, that's this garden we see here. What, what kind of garden is it? Don't picture, you know, here and in the UK, you know, a garden is someone's backyard. Americans don't get that. A garden is where you grow stuff. Um, but don't picture your backyard. Don't picture a corn, a field of corn. Don't picture your, you know, grandmother's vegetable patch. Um, 
The picture implies a few things here. There's so much. This is a brilliant piece of literature and brilliant piece of theology. There's so much loaded into these words. First of all, let me just tell you a few things about this garden. First of all, the picture implies safety. Safety. Uh, the very word garden here comes from a Hebrew term that means to protect or to enclose. And so this is, this is a, a, an enclosed, protected area. Again, not like a vegetable garden. Think of a lush, protected parkland. A, a royal forest. That's the picture that we get here. Uh, and, and Adam didn't just kind of randomly stumble onto this, did he? Um, it says um, he didn't haphazardly land here, kind of in a space capsule. It says in verse 8 that there the Lord put the man whom he had formed. God very intentionally, he created a place designed for man, and then he placed the man in it. Right? Very intentional language here. So it's a place of safety. It's also a place of provision. This is truly a garden of delights. You know what? That's what the word Eden means. It means delight or, or pleasure. And that's what this garden's about. Verse 9 speaks there uh, of food that is pleasant to the sight Good for food. The, the language is very sensory. Uh, it, it speaks of plenty and richness and pleasure. So, so God didn't just give Adam this perfect blend of vitamin supplements and protein shakes to give him the, you know, the optimum health. No, he, he gives him rich and varied and beautiful and sensuous food that he can enjoy. And, ah, it's just wonderful, isn't it? like what we're experiencing here. Um, Adam lacks nothing. That's the point. He lacks nothing. It's a place of so safety, provision, relational harmony. We're going to learn later in chapter 2 that God provides Adam a mate perfectly suited to him. That's the, the point. They're perfectly suited. A, a one flesh relationship of the most intimate kind. Then it goes on beyond... Beyond safety, beyond provision, beyond relational harmony, this is a place preeminently, most importantly, this is a place of divine companionship. Divine companionship. Chapter 3, verse 8. Look over there. Chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That, that hints at the, the greatest characteristic of this garden. The garden wasn't only for provision, like, you know, a giant Aldi or something. It, it wasn't only for pleasure, an all-inclusive resort with free water sports. It, it wasn't only for, for relationship between man and woman. This was a sanctuary, a sacred place. Chapter 8 of, of verse 2 says that the garden was in the east. In the Bible, the east is the place of life and hope. It's very important that it was in the east. In the ancient Near East, temples always faced eastward. And we see in chapter 3, 24, the very last verse of chapter 3, that the cherubim, after Adam and Eve were cast out, what are the cherubim doing? They are guarding, standing there with a sword, guarding the entrance to the east. Why? Well, they're not just guarding the entrance to the garden. They're guarding the entrance to God. Access to God is blocked by that flaming sword. 
Even the language of walking here in 3.8, the Lord God walking, that later becomes almost code word, code language for the reality of the divine presence among his people. Over in Leviticus 26, you don't have to turn there, Leviticus 26.12, it's, it's the great covenantal pronouncement. You know what I mean by that when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? That's this great covenantal pronouncement. Well, in Leviticus 12, what's often, left, what's often forgotten there is it says this, I will walk among you. Same verb. Same verb. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you see? It's by virtue of my presence with you that we'll have this relationship. So this is not simply a garden. This is a garden temple. It's the place where God and man meet. It was also on a mountain. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, we read that where it's implied there, where this the, the river flows out of the garden down to the four points of the compass. And what's implicit here, Ezekiel will make explicit later when Ezekiel will say, he will call it Eden, the mountain of God. Why a mountain? Mountains symbolize man's connection with God. Think about your Bible. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, the place of the greatest Old Testament revelation. The restored temple of Ezekiel 40 to 48 is on a mountain. Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. So what does all this tell us? What does all this wonderful stuff tell us? Well, what, is, what Google Earth moment do we derive from, from all this? Here's what it is. Here, in the, it's, it's, it's in the most, one of the most important parts of the Bible. The foundational stage of redemption history. Here we see a picture of God's purpose for mankind. What is His purpose? Unhindered fellowship between God and man in a perfect, unspoiled environment. That's the ultimate purpose of God for His creation. God present with his people. With all that that entails, blessing and joy and fellowship and harmony and flourishing, abundance, peace, shalom, joy. Brothers and sisters, this is not a children's story. This is what we were created for. You know, we were just singing. You know those times of worship where you, your, your heart is just thrilling with God's truth and, and, and a longing for His presence and you just can't seem to get enough and, and you long for more? You know what I'm talking about? This is what you're longing for. Because this is what you were created for. This isn't... It's what you were created for. You weren't created for fame. You weren't created for fun. You weren't created for video games. You weren't created for money. You weren't created for ease. You weren't created for self-fulfillment. You were created for God. And this communicates not only what you were created for, this communicates God's heart for you. God's heart for His people. 
When you think about God, if I was to interview you, tell me about God, your perception of God. Do you think of God this way? Wanting to dwell with you? Do you think of Him that way? Do you think of worship and devotions and prayer and Bible reading this way? Your worship, your devotions, your, your prayer, it's not your idea. It's God's idea. God is after something through such means of grace. He's after you. Isn't that amazing? That's God's heart. Throughout this entire narrative, God is the main actor. He's the one who prepares the garden. He's the one who takes man and places him in the garden. He's the one who reveals. He's the one who instructs. He's the one who initiates fellowship. The Bible, make no mistake, the Bible is not the story of man's search for God. The Bible is the story of God coming after man. And so at the very outset of the story, this image, a garden, lays a vital foundation. It really establishes and illuminates the Creator's purpose for mankind. To have a people among whom he can dwell. Alright? That's image number one. But you know the story, don't you? Many of you. Um, this, this idyllic setting is devastated by the entrance of sin into the world. Adam and Eve reject God's authority. They stiff-arm him. They are cast out of the garden. And the, this unspeakable privilege of unhindered fellowship with God is lost. The harmony of Eden shattered. But the story doesn't end there, does it? God's initiatives towards man continue, don't they? He, he, so, as the story goes on, he, 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 he picks this guy, Abraham, the most unlikely character to ever receive God's favor, this Iraqi moon worshiper, pagan as he could be, and God chooses him. God chooses him. And he, and he gives him promises. And he tells him that one of those promises, from you a people will come. I will create of you a people. And they're going to be God's people. And through those people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then those, so those descendants come. And the promised son comes. And descendants multiply. And eventually these people end up in Egypt. But God doesn't stop. He brings those people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He gathers them at Mount Sinai. And he forges them into a nation. This motley crew, this loose federation of tribes and clans is transformed. In Exodus, he's transformed into a nation. And not just any nation, a nation that would represent God to all the earth. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's amazing, isn't it? What a story. Well, that leads to image number two. First was a garden, image number two, a dwelling. A dwelling. Turn over, next book of the Bible, Exodus, Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Um, God, so, in the story, God has, has delivered Israel out of Egypt. He has brought them to Mount Sinai. He gives them his law, this incredible...
incredible revelation of his mind and his purposes and his, his will and his standards. He makes a covenant with them, his incredible covenant in, in Exodus 24. And then after the covenant is ratified, God gives some instruction. It's amazing instruction. Exodus 25, verse 1. Look at what he says. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps. This is about the time you close your Bible and your devotions and say, okay, time for work. Um, or turn to the Psalms. Um, the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them, here it is, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Don't stop reading until you get to verse 8. In addition to rescuing them, in addition to giving them God's law, Israel is promised God's very presence. Incredible. At the very establishment of God's people as a nation, it's just happened. At the very establishment of this, this reality, God's presence, becomes a fundamental characteristic of the nation's identity. From now on, they would be marked not by a flag, not by a motto, not by a national anthem. They will be marked by God's presence. That's what makes them them. That's what makes them God's people. To be the nation was to have God's presence. Turn over a few more pages. Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Perhaps you remember what happened after this, amazingly. Uh, the golden calf incident where Moses stays on the mountain too long for them and they, they make an idol and worship it and execution of 3,000 men. After all of that, God stunningly graciously sends the people on to the promised land. Right? He's, he's still going to do that. And he says this, My angel will go before you, but I will not go with you. He'll lead you, but I will not be among you. It's a, it's a promise, but it's a haunting promise. And, and here's Moses' response to that in Exodus 33. Look at verse 12. Exodus 33, 12. So here's how Moses responds Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, don't send us up from here. For how shall it... This is key. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see his argument. 
What is the fundamental factor that will distinguish Israel from all the other nations on earth? What is it? God's presence. That's what it is. This is what it means to be God's people. This is, this is an entirely new development in, in salvation history. Never before had God dwelt with man. Now, man had unhindered fellowship with God in the garden, but God didn't live in Eden. He came walking there, didn't he? Uh, God appeared to the patriarchs, to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he didn't dwell with them. As, as powerful as the revelation on, on Mount Sinai was, with thunder and lightning and fire and shaking, God didn't live on Mount Sinai. He wasn't like the gods of the Greek pantheon that lived on Mount Olympus. No, God didn't live there. But now, God says, build me a tent. I'm going to live with you. I'm moving into your neighborhood. I'm going to be your neighbor. And so they build God this dwelling, this tent, this, the tabernacle. And God takes up residence in their midst. And, and even the location of the tabernacle hints at that. It was to be located where? Do you remember when they were mar marching where it was to be? When they set up camp at the end of the day? The tabernacle was in the very center of the camp. Three tribes on this side. Three tribes set up their tents on this side. Three tribes on this side. Surrounded. God in the very middle. That's exactly where a king's tent would be set up, surrounded by his armies as the king led his people in the battle. <laughs> well, now Israel's king was in the camp, marching with them, as it were, to the promised land. So when the people are on the move, God is with them. God is marching with them. He's living in a tent, just like they are, with them, identifying. But when they settled in the land, God's going to settle too with them. Just as an ancient king would build his royal house after a conquest, so now a house is to be built for the divine warrior, the temple in Jerusalem. And so a dwelling, first the tabernacle, then the temple. Further reveals God's purpose, but it advances the plot as well. It reveals again God's purpose to dwell among a people that he has claimed for his own. But, but this image reveals more. This, this truth is given greater specificity. Because in addition to God's presence, this, these dwellings also spoke of God's transcendence. His otherness. God is in their midst, yes, but it's not unhindered fellowship as it was in Eden. The tabernacle is divided, isn't it? There's a curtain that separated the most holy place, God's own footstool. Access to God's presence is not open to everyone, but only certain people. It's mediated by representative priests. God dwells among them, yes, but only through the provision of sacrifices to cover sin. So this... Image tells us more. You see, God's presence is not always good news. A 
holy God cannot dwell among a sinful people. That's the most dangerous place in the universe to be as a sinner. That's the problem that the whole book of Leviticus exists for. That's the problem Leviticus tackles. There can be no tabernacle, there can be no temple without some provision for sin. It's it's inconceivable. They go together. And these sacrifices, you you remember this, they, they repeated over and over and over every day, piling up, I don't even know where they got all these animals, piling up animal after animal after animal. Why? Because people's sin continued and remained and piled up and so more and more and more. And so here's what's happening, and in in, here's what God is saying here, that the entire structure and the whole sacri- sacrificial system that accompanying it communicated a reality. Something is being built into the very consciousness, the institutional memory of these people. What's being built into their mind? God is with them like no other nation on earth. But even then, they are shielded from His presence. They are in need of a sacrifice. They are in need of a meeting. You see, the shadow of Eden hangs over these dwellings, doesn't it? And so in this dwelling, God is both imminent, He's there, He's close, but He's also transcendent. He is other than them in His holiness, in His majesty, in His exalted glory. That's image two. Well, the story moves on, of course. Perhaps you know what happens next. Soon after the glorious, when the when t- tabernacle gives way to, to the temple, and we have this glorious dedication of this temple in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 uh, under Solomon. But soon after that, compromise and idolatry enter, and they sow the seeds of the nation's destruction. It's amazing to read those first chapters of, of 1 Kings. You Everything... You know, you have this, all of this description of the this expansion of the kingdom and the expansion of the boundaries and, and the wealth that is there. And there's gold everywhere. And there's golden utensils. And there's this glorious throne made out of ivory overlaid with gold. And there's 12 lions, each one on either side of the six steps surrounding the throne. And, and even, even the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 comes and, oh, the half wasn't told of me. And so now we're hearing echoes of that promise to Abraham that through his people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, now the nations are coming and they're marveling. And so you think, oh, wow, it's happening. God's fulfilling His purposes. 1 Kings 10. And then 1 Kings 11 verse 1 says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women. And it all comes crashing down. It's heartbreaking. Soon the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom is conquered just about 200 years later by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom survives for a while, but then they too are defeated by Babylon. And it all, all the hopes, all the glory, all the dreams, they all come crashing down. And in 587 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. And get this, the temple 
the temple. The temple. Where God lives. The temple. Devastated. Decimated. Raised to the ground. Think about that. The very place God chose as his dwelling. The place that would give expression to this commitment, to this resolve, to dwell among the people he's made his own. That very place destroyed. The people? God's people? Or are they? I don't know. What happens to them? Exile. Exile. That, that's, not just, that's not just an unfortunate military loss. That is a theological catastrophe. Because the land is not just a piece of real estate. The land is that place where they are to live out their relationship with God. This place promised to Abraham. It was the theater of God's glory. The place where they, where all the nations would come to. To see what it's like when people live in fellowship with their creator. Huh, it's lost. Their very self-understanding of God's people called into question. So God's purpose to dwell among a people that he has made his own, that the pattern established in Eden, the, the appearances to the patriarchs, the theophany at Mount Sinai, the, the pillar of cloud by day leading the people, the pillar of fire by night leading the people, the tabernacle, the temple, the very dwelling place of God, it's all lost. But it's not over. This is grace or what? It's not over because God's resolve remains. His resolve remains. And so through the prophet, God kindles these hopes, sparks of hope with these promises. I will forgive you. I will regather you. I will bring you back to the land. And then the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, says this. You don't have to turn. I'll just read it. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple. The Lord's going to come into his temple. It's the last prophet of the Old Testament. That brings us to image number three. A garden, a dwelling. Image number three, a person. A person. Turn to John chapter 1. I know you've been studying this as a, as a church. This will be familiar. A person, but so much more than a person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of this only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. So the word, become, this one who was with God, who was God, all that God was, the word was. He becomes flesh. And not just flesh, he dwelt among us. And you, you may be aware that that word dwelt among us literally means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. In other words, he, the word, became flesh and set up his tent with us. 
You see, just as the former tabernacle would be set in the middle of the camp with three tribes on one side and three tribes on the other and three tribes on the other and three tribes on the other. Everyone set up their tent. God's tent in the middle. Now again, God is setting up his tent among his people. Once again, God is acting to dwell among a people, but now in a much more direct way, in a much more glorious way, in a much more personal way than he ever had before. So with the tabernacle revealed in shadows, Jesus fulfilled in reality. Look over John 2, 2.18, next page. 2.18 So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So not only is Jesus fulfilling the reality of the tabernacle, he is also the new temple. A massive change in salvation history. Now the place where God dwells with His people is not in a building, it's in Jesus Christ. Now the place where man encounters God is not in a structure, it's in Jesus Christ. Now the place where sacrifices are made so that God can dwell with man is no longer on an altar, it's in Jesus' very own body. He fulfills all of those purposes of the temple. Revelation fellowship, sacrifice. It's all now in Jesus. And at His death on the cross and the rending of His flesh and the spilling of His blood, what happened? Do you remember the veil of that temple separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, guarding access to the presence of God, just like that cherubim did in Genesis 3.24? That veil is torn in two. Which means what? Access to God's presence is now available to everyone through and only through Jesus Christ. So now as the story unfolds, we see in this third image, once again, God dwells with man, but this time in the most personal way possible. And this time in such a way as to remove permanently, decisively, forever that barrier that stood between sinful man and a holy God. He came in a particular way. He came to die for our sins. He came to absorb in His body God's wrath. He came to reconcile us with God so that we could in reality now dwell with God forever. Never has God dwelt with His people more personally, more authentically, more gloriously than in Jesus Christ. Alright, let's stop for a second. Think, think about... Let's go back to your church. Think about your church. Think about your, your Sunday gathering. Do you realize that when we gather, just as we did this morning, as we are right now, when we gather... As the church, we gather like no other group of people ever has in all of human history. Through Jesus and His sacrifice, we come into God's very presence. This is not a group of people with chairs and instruments and great decorations. We, there's something 
Peer beneath that, we gather into God's very presence. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this. No need to turn, I'll read it to you. Listen carefully though. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened us for us through the curtain, that is, through His own flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. You realize that's possible now through the gospel? We can boldly, the the language is striking, we can boldly enter into the holy place, the last place in the universe we should be bold. You don't enter God's presence bold. You enter God's presence to get destroyed. Unless He's made a way. And He has. And so we can be bold. It's unthinkable to be bold, but we can. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. Isn't that glorious? All because of our great high priest. Leads to the next image. A garden, a dwelling, a person. The fourth, a people. A people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul is actually speaking here about pastors, about Christian leaders, and their accountability to build carefully with gospel truth. But then he says this. He he unveils a truth that should make the knees of a pastor shake. Do 3.16 Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, he's talking about pastors, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now think about this. Paul is writing these words to a group of former pagans living in southern Greece while the Jerusalem temple was still standing. The temple was there. They knew it. How could he do such a thing, this this Jew? How could he write such... Are these blasphemous words? Something has happened. That's why he could write them. Christ, who is the new temple, has ascended to the right hand of God. But as he promised in John chapter 14, which he studied as a church, he would not leave us as orphans. The Father would send another helper, another just like Jesus, to be with us forever. And so when that happens, and the Holy Spirit comes and gives birth to the New Testament church, filling believers, then the church in union with Christ, filled by the Holy Spirit, now the church is that divine sanctuary where God dwells. You see? We, we hear about the church as the temple. We shouldn't just nod our heads. Yeah, I know. No, we should just be blown away. God no longer dwells in the sanctuary that we made with hands for Him. He dwells in us. We are His temple. Look quickly. Next book, 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. I just want to show you one thing. Paul makes this point quickly again. 
same point by showing how what the Old Testament anticipated the church fulfills. This was the plan all along, he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. 6 verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. Now, he's drawing back to verses we've looked at and ideas we've explored. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Do you see the logic? Paul combines here a couple of Old Testament verses, Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37, that, that promise future forgiveness and future restoration and, and bringing God's people back to exile. It spoke of the sending of God's Spirit and one day to make them alive, to make them His. And now Paul is saying, all of that, it's been done. It's fulfilled in the church. All these Old Testament promises come come. come Barreling forward until they're fulfilled right here among us. I, I imagine the Corinthians just like mind spinning, makes my head spin. All right, back to your church. Theologically, who are you? What is it theologically? It's not a building. It's not a crowd. It's not a service. It's not a social configuration (coughs) by very clever Australians like yourselves. No. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the most precious thing on earth. It is that the church is that created entity that is nearest and dearest to God's heart. The church as the gathered people of God is that particular place on earth where God has chosen to dwell. Here in the church, God uniquely acts. Here in the church, God uniquely dwells. Do you believe that? It's it's the Bible. The implications are enormous. Multifaceted. The rest of the New Testament, is, in one sense, is un- un- unpacks that truth. Let me just give you one implication that's very personal. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul makes an application there. We didn't move on. He, he's applying that, though, to their moral lives, to their holiness. Uh, Corinth was full of pagan temples, notorious for immorality. And so Paul knows they're going to be tempted. He knows their setting. And so he braces them with this. He braces them for their temptations with this reality. We are God's temple. So what's the implication? We must keep that temple pure. If this is the dwelling place of God, can we live any other way than pure? Is the logic. Holiness is not an optional extra for Christians. It, it's not some selective virtue that we pick and choose if it, if it suits our fancy. Holiness is the standard for God's people, not because we're a bunch of moralistic, repressed people. Holiness is the standard because God dwells here. And it's therefore not some oppressive thing. It's beautiful, it's lovely, it's attractive, it's, it's what we want. So that's a personal implication. Here's a corporate implication. 
our, that's one reason our gatherings are so important. God dwells here. God, God is, theologians tell us, God is omnipresent. Do you know this? That means He is present at every point of space with all of His being. Now, if you can get your head around that, then take my job, because I can't. <laughs> Yet, although God is present at every point of space with all of His being, God is uniquely present among His people. He is unique. God is present in different places in different ways. He manifests Himself in different ways for different ends. In the church, God manifests Himself most fully. And He is there, He is present not to judge, he's present to reveal, he's present to bless, he's present to spread the fame of his name through the church to all the nations. It, it's a glorious truth that all believers individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, but far more pervasive, the stress of the New Testament is far more strong on the idea that God's people together are his temple. And he, brothers and sisters, is uniquely present when you gather together. Sundays aren't just nice things that I might do. There's nothing more significant on earth than what happens in the Sunday gathering of God's people. That's where it's happening. That's where it is happening. So, what's your attitude towards the church? Not a random gathering of individuals. Your church, with all other true churches, the very dwelling place of God on earth. With all our sin, <laughs> and all our weakness, and all our stupidity, and all our petty things, yes, we have it all. God dwells here by His grace. What an awesome privilege. What a sobering privilege. It's what you were made for. But even this, even this, as glorious as this privilege is, the church is the dwelling of God. It's not ultimate. It's pointing to something even greater. Which brings us to our last image, image number five. Garden, a dwelling, a person, a people. Number five, a city. A city. Turn to the end of your Bibles. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Everything we've read up to this point has been preparing us for the scene presented at the end of the book of Revelation. Here is the consummation of of this purpose of God. Here is the climax of everything that has proceeded. You won't get this scene if you haven't read the rest of the story. It'll seem strange. Let's read. Let's just, I'm going to read a few verses here. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. There's a mountain again. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod. Twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. I love that line. (laughs) By human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I guess they have the same rulers. Um, the, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is the Lamb. There's actually a surprise here in the end of the book. Did you know that? In the wake of defeat and destruction, Israel had had looked forward to a temple Ezekiel 40 to 48 speaks of that temple that God will once again inhabit. When we come to the consummation at the end of the book, no temple. What's up with the picture? Verse 22 runs counter to all the hopes of Judaism. Why no temple? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 22, there's no need, in other words, for a special, isolated place to meet with God because God's immediate presence fills the entire city. Note that the measurements of the city, verse 16, show it to be a perfect cube. Its length and width and height are equal. That's a cube. There's only one other cube in all of Scripture. Do you know what it was? The Holy of Holies. That was the cube, the only cube in Scripture. Well, now, what's the point? We just geometrists here? No. The point is, the entire New Jerusalem is one giant holy of holies where God dwells. That's the point. God will fill the entire city with His glorious, life-giving presence. There are some differences with that temple. Both both the tabernacle and the temple had divisions which restricted access to various people. Some open to laity, some open to priests. The most holy place only open to the the high priest and then just once a year. In the New Jerusalem, there are no divisions. Did you notice that? There's a wall around the city, but there's no walls inside the city. There's no walls. There's no curtains. Why? Why? 
all God's people have complete access to God in this giant holy of holies. In that place, brothers and sisters, we will. If you're, if, if you are facing tragedy right now, if you are, if your heart is broken, know this. In that city, we will experience the immediacy and the intensity of God's presence like never before. No interruptions, no opposition, no temptations, just an ever-expanding, ever-intensifying, ever-accelerating experience of God's presence 24-7, total joy in the presence of Christ forever. That's what awaits us. In that old temple, there was an altar. There's no altar here. Why? Because the definitive sacrifice had been accomplished once for all at the cross. And the Lamb who was slain now stands in the center of worship. So if you're paying attention, you realize that this ending scene really brings us back full circle to the very beginning, doesn't it? Back to Eden. The new heavens and new earth recall the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. Instead of Adam and Eve, we have Christ, the second Adam. And we have the heavenly bridegroom, the church, being received by her husband. As Adam and Eve fellowship with God in the garden, so do the redeemed fellowship with God throughout the new Jerusalem. There was a river flowing out of Eden. Well, here we have a river of life flowing from the throne. The tree of life is there as well, only now... It lines both sides of the tree of life. So what's the point of all that? Well, now we see God's purpose that we map onto. Mankind returns to paradise with face-to-face fellowship, not experienced with God since Eden, though now experienced in full. I want to read something to you. It's a beautiful description provided by Ian Duguid. Listen to this carefully. God will no longer be worshipped here and there, wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ, as strangers and aliens in a world which is not their home. That's us. There he will be worshipped permanently, on the heavenly mountain, by the whole community of saints of all times and places, along with the heavenly hosts of angels and archangels, there, there will be no more sin to be atoned for. No more weakness of the flesh to be mortified. No more forces of the evil one to be resisted. Only the people of the king gathered in the presence of the king to worship the king forever. Does that throw your heart? God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people he's made his own. That's what he said. Revealed in the garden, developed throughout salvation history, will be consummated in the New Jerusalem. It's not a story. This is God's heart for you. Did you know that? This is God's purpose for you. Do you realize that? Here's the astonishing truth I want to end with. For the church of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ, this is a reality now. Through the cross, God has demolished 
that impenetrable barrier between Him and us. Through the Holy Spirit, God has taken up residence with us now. So, here is your church, brothers and sisters. The place on earth where God most fully makes known His presence. If you treasure God, you will treasure the church. Because here, He uniquely dwells. If you hunger for God's presence, you will hunger for the church. Because it is here that God's presence is most fully known. If you love God, you you will love the church. For she, God's people, are the ones for whom her Savior died. If you long for heaven... The older you get, I promise you, a lot of you are younger than me. Most of you are. You're going to long for heaven more and more. As you suffer and you see tragedy, you see the effects of sin more and more. used to think I was immortal when I was like 21. No more. Long for heaven. But if you long for heaven, you'll love the church. Because here is where we taste, we taste in part what we will experience in fullness there forever. So to live on purpose, to live life on, on to live life on purpose, we've got to start with God's purpose. This is meant to inform every area of your life and my life. When we gather to worship, think of any category. You gather to worship, God wants to dwell with us. You get out of bed Monday morning, this retreat's going to be over. Not everyone's going to just love you and hug you. There's going to be people hating you and trying to step on you and Guess what? God, is, you're not alone. God's with you. He wants to dwell with you. When you're tempted to sin, you're not out of God's gaze, but nor are you without His help. Why? Because He wants to dwell with you. We can, we can pray now with confidence. Why? God desires to dwell. We can sing with abandon. Why? Because God desires to dwell. We can live life every day with confidence. Every day, every joy, every heartache, every trial. Why? Because God desires to dwell with us. And it's possible because of the cross. Let's pray. Oh Lord, to gaze, Lord, just a glimpse of your merciful, gracious presence, Lord, it just makes our life different and exposes, Lord, for myself, it just exposes how superficial and narrow and self-centered my vision can be, Lord. I thank you for that you don't leave me there. You don't leave us there. You've given us your word that reveals something glorious that you've given us yourself. That we might dwell with you forever. Lord, help us to live. Help Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, Lord, to live more fully today, tomorrow, next week, next year more fully, more consciously, more consistently in light of that glorious purpose.